Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Matthew chapter 5. We are reading verses 17 through 48. Listen carefully to God's Word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning and we give thanks. And as we meet the claims of our Lord Jesus, as he explains your law to us, we ask that you would unite that hearing with faith, that you give us grace to hear, and that we listen. And so open our ears, grant us understanding, give us your light. We confess that it is only in your light that we can see. And so we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, when pastoring in Arlington, Virginia, our family lived off the back of the Pentagon, and we lived in a house that had fallen into disrepair and required extensive renovations. It was built in 1937 and had had a kind of lipstick on the pig renovation in the 1960s. It was ugly. After finishing the inside portion of the house, turned to the outside, and it was there that I met hard Virginia clay filled with overgrown azaleas and also dense weeds. It was difficult. There was actually a large planter in a portion of the yard, and so I destroyed the planter and then figured out why such a large planter had been constructed. It was concealing a very large stump of a former oak tree. And so we dug this out and we began working on the grass situation. I tilled the yard and raked it, re-leveled, and finally, after removing all of the weeds, planted seed, began to water. And then one of the most gratifying things in all of my life happened. In a few short months, I had this lush, green, fantastic yard. It was like it had been created out of nothing almost, just because the results were so extreme. The next spring, my lush green fescue grass, though, began to suffer an affliction. One of my neighbors was not as conscientious in his yard care, and he shared with me his crabgrass. And so I began to note large patches of crabgrass going everywhere. And so I tried several different remedies to take care of the crabgrass and had to go to the local garden center and share with them what was happening. And so they sold me a small bottle of concentrated treatment that would take care of the crabgrass. I was to attach it to the end of the garden hose and then spray it. You may have used something like this before. In my haste to finish this chore, though, I simply attached it to the hose and began spraying. This one small bottle was supposed to be used over the entire yard. It was a match to our square footage. Within 30 seconds, though, I noted that the bottle was empty. It was at that point that I detached it from the hose because I had only treated one small area of the yard, and I began to read the instructions. They were attached to the outside of the bottle. There was a small fold-out that you pulled, and then this long string of instructions uh, emerged. And I noticed that I had failed to set one of the most important settings on the bottle. 
that would adjust how much of the treatment was released at once. So I did manage to kill the crabgrass. I also killed everything else in the, <laughs> in the area where I had this wonderful brown spot com of complete death in the middle of a nice green yard that had crabgrass in other parts. So it was all a matter of user error a failure to understand, a failure to appreciate, a failure to appropriate the treatment right. And as Jesus begins his ministry, he encountered the same type of dynamic in the religious world, that is the world of the Old Testament church. You see, there was a great deal of energy and there was a great deal of zeal for the Mosaic law, but there was this profound and fundamental misunderstanding of how to use that law and how to relate it, to how to relate to it. And then there was going to be a misunderstanding of how to relate to that law in light of the coming of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven drawing near. There were also all these competing schools of interpretation. One would claim this and one would claim that. One would explain it this way, another that. And so Jesus, after healing and preaching that the gospel of the kingdom had arrived in him, ascends the mountain, he sits down, and he begins to teach his disciples, and specifically in this first main point of his sermon, he will give six illustrations where he is explaining the law. But he's not just explaining all the laws, he's giving principles and he's giving examples of how the law is now to be heard in light of him. He is the authoritative teacher. Above and beyond all the schools, it is him that we are to listen to. And he comes to provide us this authoritative teaching. And this is what we find in Matthew 5, in this long chapter in verses 17 through 48. And Jesus is going to instruct us and guide us, lead us in the way of five different principles about how we are to hear and receive the law of God and how we are to hear and receive the claim of God upon our lives. So very briefly this morning, ahead of our celebration of the Lord's table, let's look at these five different principles. First, in verses 17 through 20, we see that Jesus actually affirms the law. There were some, most likely the scribes and the Pharisees, who were rather exercised about Jesus. They were usurp he was usurping their place in society in certain ways. Crowds were being drawn to him, and it seems that they were accusing him of sitting loosely to the Old Testament, particularly the, Mos uh, the Mosaic law. And so in verse 17, Jesus actually explains very explicitly his relationship to that law. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus, to the contrary of what they were expecting him to say, he says, no, I have come in continuity with everything that has been revealed, and I am the fulfillment of it. Now, it's important for us to appreciate two things about this fulfillment. Jesus does come in fulfillment of the law, and he fulfills the law by fulfilling its requirements. That is, he walked with God in perfect faith and obedience, a wholeness of heart that was integrated. His love for God was clean, and it was pure. 
he fulfills his calling to be the son of David, who would bring the inheritance of the nations, and also to do so through his suffering. This is his fulfilling of the law. He does all of this in order to be a righteous and perfect sacrifice, that he could be the one who stands in our place and reconciles us to God. This is one aspect of Jesus' fulfilling of the law. But the second way is that, that he fulfills the law is by teaching it and showing us its true meaning and goal. As we saw in Isaiah 2, in verses 2 through 5 last week, that this was part of the last days, that the nations would gather at the holy mounts of God, and they would hear the true teaching of the law. And so this is what we find unfolding here. John Calvin, the Genevan reformer, explains that this is the primary use of the law, what we often call the third use of the law, that the reconciled children of God, who have been made God's own through the sacrifice of Jesus, now come to sit at the feet of God and to be taught by Him. We're being taught by Him not to earn our way into heaven to climb up some spiritual ladder, but rather for our lives to be shaped by His good word. And so Jesus comes to fulfill the law in all of these ways, but he affirms it. He is the one who must stand in our place. He fulfills it in that sense, and he fulfills it also in the sense of being its true and best interpreter and lets us know its goal and the will of God for us. So Jesus affirms the law, fulfilling it for us and teaching it to us. But secondly, in verses 21 through 30 we see that Jesus also spiritualizes the law. In these verses, Jesus refers to two of the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue. He refers to the Sixth Commandment, that you shall not murder, and he refers to the Seventh Commandment, that you shall not commit adultery. But then he takes the commandment further and does something very uncomfortable for us because he isn't content to interpret the commandment simply as a code requiring external conformity. Calvin, in his, in his writings on the Old Testament law, explains that what Jesus does here is the primary difference between earthly lawgivers and God, the spiritual lawgiver. And he goes into an extended discussion where he explains what an earthly lawgiver requires of us. And the earthly lawgiver simply requires external conformity to the command. A speed limit is posted, or a law is made, do not do this, or taxes are assigned, and we are to pay those. We are to obey the general rule, and externally we are to conform, or we can be prosecuted. Calvin explains that, yes, that's part of following the law of God is external conformity. But because God is not just an earthly lawgiver, there's another element. He's a spiritual lawgiver. And God is not content to stop there, but rather he's going to dive into our motives, our attitudes, and the thoughts in the heart. And this is what Jesus does in these two examples, in the command not to murder and the command not to commit adultery. You follow what he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And so not only is he concerned with not killing someone, not exercising violence, 
He's concerned with the spirituality of what's going on in the heart and our anger towards our brothers and sisters. And then he moves on to the issue of adultery. And he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And what Jesus is doing here is he's seeking to cut off the action, the bad action, at its root. And it's not sufficient in our sanctification simply to address the external act, even though we must do that. We don't want to nurture anger and bitterness, covetousness, fantasy, and illicit desire in our hearts. And so the law of God itself is spiritual and not simply focused on external conformity. It doesn't simply address the fruit of bad action, but it also addresses the seed of bad action. And friends, this is where we have to allow the law of God to do its work in our heart because it reveals and exposes, and it does so uncomfortably. What we can hide and shield from the world around us, we cannot hide and shield from God. Jesus is saying that God sees it, and this is also one of his goals is to purify us from within. And so this is Jesus' spiritualization of the law. Third, as a principle, in verses 31 through 32, we see that Jesus also clarifies the law. Jesus, in these verses, addresses the issue of divorce. He says this, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Here, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, where Moses, due to the hardness of the people's heart, gives a proper reasons for divorce. Moses mentions there that the proper cause of divorce is if some indecency is found in your spouse. That indecency is not then given further explanation. And so through the centuries after Moses issues this permission, lots of different commentary was provided about this indecency. And you can imagine the reams of literature that were written in order to justify a man and a woman not wanting to continue on in a marriage. And this went all the way down into Jesus' day, where indecency could be defined as a meal that was overcooked. And so Deuteronomy 24 was used to justify the separation of a husband and wife. And in that world, the, the wife was then left in incredible danger and was incredibly vulnerable in society. And so Jesus steps into the situation and he says, no, but there's one cause in which divorce is permissible. And he attributes this to sexual immorality. This is a broad term that Jesus can use. It can, ref, uh, it, it can refer to adultery. It can refer to all kinds of different sexual sins. But Jesus is saying, no, this is the indecency that Moses is focused on. And so he's clarifying years of misappropriation of the law, and he's then applying that to the people and explaining what it is that God truly wants. This is where he is the authoritative teacher of God's law. The great irony that is happening here with the Israelites is that they were developing these traditions and customs of applying the law. And the scribes and the Pharisees would actually claim that they were maximizing the law, that they were the ones taking it seriously. 
And so copious amounts of uh, examples would be given, like burning the meal, and that that was classified as indecency. That would be done throughout all the different commandments. And they would justify it by saying, no, this is maximizing the law. We care about it. The problem is all those people out there who won't listen to it. But then, ironically, what Jesus is saying is that in maximizing the law, they were actually minimizing it. They were not actually listening to the claim of God. They were justifying their own behaviors. They were giving themselves escape clauses. They were negotiating their obedience with God. And friends, this is the danger, not for those out there, but for those in the church, those accustomed to handling the commands of God, those who want to apply it, because in wanting to maximize the law, we can often minimize it and we can make a joke of it. We can go beyond the law, creating traditions that are not of God, or we can come up short of the law. Jesus comes to be our authoritative teacher who clarifies the claim of the law, and he wants us to allow it to be as radical as God intends it to be. He wants, to allow it, uh, he wants us to hear it clearly and to apply it to our lives, but to be careful of our human traditions that we oftentimes allow to accumulate around it. And so this is what he does in clarifying the law. Fourth, in a long section from verses 33 through 47, we see that Jesus not only clarifies, but he's going to purify the law. There are several examples here that we'll not be able to address, but Jesus discusses oaths. He discusses the prescription of justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and he discusses the law of loving our neighbors. These are all examples in which Israel was once again misappropriating the law by adding to it. To look at the example of oaths is a helpful one. Because Jesus does speak very strongly here against the use of oaths. And many people are then confused by this because we had oaths being taken in the Bible. Paul, after the time of Jesus, actually takes an oath, and so people scratch their heads. We have to understand the contemporary setting in which Jesus was ministering because the Israelites had created a gradated system in which you could take an oath but not be obligated to fulfill it. Now, this will sound strange, but just follow along for a second. If you turn to Matthew chapter 23, you'll see an example of this as Jesus addresses the Pharisees. In verse 16, he says, "'Woe to you blind guides, who say, "'If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing.'" But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Now, he goes on to give more examples like that, but this was the gradated system. How it developed, we don't quite know, but I think we can all also understand. If I swear by this, I'm not bound. If I swear by that, then I have to keep my word. And so it's this elaborate bargaining system where you did not know if someone's yes was a yes. And you did not know if their no was a no. You were living in a society where words were empty and no one could be trusted. The entire system was created in order that you could swear but not have to fulfill what you said. There were elaborate ways to wiggle out 
and get out of what you said you were going to do. It lacked integrity. It was completely an invention that was added on to the Mosaic law. And so Jesus is aiming to purify it. The Israelites had also added to the law in the command, you have heard it said, you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The hating your enemy part is not found in the Old Testament. It was just simply an addition. And they felt justified that that was the corollary of loving neighbor and not being merciful. And so Jesus comes not only to clarify, but also to purify. The final principle we find in the last verse of this portion of Jesus' sermon in verse 48. And this is where Jesus also comes to summarize the law. He says these words, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now in this summary, Jesus is stating the goal of all the law, that we are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. This verse from Jesus is similar to ones that we find in the Old Testament, that we are to be holy as God himself is holy. But there's also something slightly unfortunate about modern English translations. And that is that the word perfect is a complicated one. That in the original language, it's hard for us to actually bring this concept over into English. This happens in all translations where it's difficult sometimes to take a certain concept that has several different range of reference and to bring it into another language. But in the original, the word contains several different connotations. It's connotations of words like wholeness, words like completeness, and so it carries this meaning of wholehearted dedication or devotion to God. So you must be devoted, you must be sincere, as your heavenly Father is sincere. And what Jesus is speaking of is that we are to be wholehearted in our devotion to God in His covenant, as God is wholehearted in His devotion to us. And so the goal of the person who's been healed by Jesus is to offer their singular devotion to God. That means to be a whole person who's not just doing the external obedience thing, keeping up the show, keeping up the religious appearance, but no one who is allowing the spirituality of the law to sink deep within the heart and to remove the very roots of sin, the burning fire within us that allows the law of God to penetrate down into the depths of our being. This is what Jesus is saying that the summary of the law is this, that we are to be this whole and complete person, this person devoted to God. One of the most fascinating things about the Gospel of Matthew is how the themes that are introduced here in the Sermon on the Mount are oftentimes then treated again later on. And we find this particular word, the summary of the law about being perfect, treated once again in Matthew 19. You may find it helpful to turn there in verse 16 through 22. But here a rich young man approaches Jesus, and he asks a question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus then responds with a question, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The young man then justifies himself. 
He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, this is the word under discussion, if you would be whole, if you would be complete, if you would be singular in your devotion to God, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When a young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus challenges the young man to be perfect. And some can hear that as Jesus was calling him to be just absolutely morally righteous. It's possible, but I think it's better to hear that Jesus was calling this young man to wholeness and completion, to a singular devotion to God. This wasn't going to reconcile him to God, but it was going to demonstrate his belief and his trust and his faith in God. And so, Jesus, when he calls this man to this singular devotion, he is exposing that his loves are disordered. He walks away from Jesus because he loved his possessions. This is what had captured his heart. And he could protest that he had kept all the commandments. But what Jesus is driving at is, no, you've broken the very first commandment. That yes, you may have kept all the commandments in their external form, but you shattered the very most fundamental one, that you've loved something next to or above God himself. And he walks away sad. And friends, it is this type of singular devotion that we love God and then we love everything in relationship to God below that, that he is after in his interpretation of the law. We do this because we are the healed and redeemed and restored people. And we come to Jesus because we believe he has wisdom. And we want to sit at his feet and hear the authoritative teacher lead and guide us in the way. That we want our righteousness to be greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, not because we're going to sneak into heaven and earn God's favor, but simply because this is the response of gratitude. We want to be under Jesus' tutelage, to learn what it means to be whole, to learn what it means to be complete. He is our teacher. And so to allow him today to affirm the goodness of the law and hear him do so, knowing that he is the one who fulfills the law by being obedient in your place and also teaching you properly what God's claim is. Hear him spiritualize the law and make its radical demands on our lives. Hear him clarify and purify the law from all the ways that we can add to it and complicate it and take away from it and go beyond it. And then chiefly hear him summarize it as he calls you to a single-hearted obedience, completeness and wholeness before God because it is this God who has loved you. It's this God who has drawn near to you who has made you his own through the sacrifice of his son. And so we come to the authoritative teacher, and we ask him to teach us. Let's pray for his help. Father, this morning as we come before your claim, 
We confess our unworthiness. Our hearts are exposed. Our deeds are known to you. Though we are able to hide them from one another, we cannot hide ourselves. We cannot conceal our hearts from you. Our sins are known. No secrets are hidden in your sight. And so we ask that you would teach us and instruct us and remind us of Jesus' fulfillment of the law on our behalf, that he, the righteous sacrifice, stands in our place, and in him we are pure and clean, and only because of him. And as your healed and restored community, we ask that you would teach us and guide us in your way, that you will write your law upon our hearts in all of its demands. And so affirm, purify, clarify, help us to know how to apply all that you've said. We come gratefully and joyfully this morning as sons and daughters redeemed and reconciled by you, and we come to take up the privilege of praying, of offering supplications and intercessions on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of your world. And so let's join our hearts together in silent prayer for the following concerns.